Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking with David Livingstone about his really wonderful new book, Dealing with Darwin, Place, Politics, and Rhetoric in Religious Engagements with Evolution. This was published with the Johns Hopkins University Press in 2014. Now, the interview is quite extensive, so I'll keep this intro relatively brief, but this is just to say, this is a really fascinating study, whether or not you consider yourself to be particularly interested in Darwin um, and the histories of Darwinian thought. One of the really wonderful things about the book is that it proposes and shows us a, very carefully an example of carrying out a kind of methodological approach and a framework for understanding and mapping out how to be attentive to the importance of spaces, of very locally specific spaces, of both reading, of writing, and also of talking and listening as they shape um, the transformations of knowledge in the history of science and, and well beyond. So it's a book that looks very carefully at different localities that are dealing with Darwinian thought, Darwinian evolution, Darwin's texts, and that all share the same confessional heritage. And in doing so, it's taking us into some really fascinating spaces where we see the histories of race um, playing out, histories of engagement with Baconian induction, histories of attentiveness to um, role in a particular university context and what rhetorical demands and constraints these performative roles place on an individual when they are engaging publicly um, with ideas like um, that of Darwinian evolution or beyond. So it's a really wonderfully wide-ranging, but at the same time, very focused study. Um, It's sparklingly written. The prose is an absolute pleasure to read, and it was an absolute pleasure as well to talk with David about it. So I hope you have a chance to take a look at the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with David Livingstone about his new book, Dealing with Darwin, Place, Politics, and Rhetoric in Religious Engagements with Evolution. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, David, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. So could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by just saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, how did you come to do academic work on the history of science? Yeah, well, I was originally trained in the earth sciences as a as a geographer, and um, when I came to do my doctoral work, I'd become absorbed by the intellectual history of geographical knowledge. Um, so I began working on a project, I think... Uh, not very common in the um, geographical sciences at the time for someone in a department of that sort to do an intellectual history project. But I began working at any rate on uh, roughly the, the development of the earth sciences in late 19th century America. 
And this uh, this led eventually to a, um, a, a PhD and to my first book on a geologist by the name of Nathaniel Shaler. Now, <clears throat> along the way, of course, I'd become quite interested in, I suppose, something that it, it, you just cannot read uh, 19th century science without seeing that it had many implications for and debates over matters to do with religion. So even from those early days, I was kind of hooked into thinking about questions of science and religion in the 19th century, and then, of course, it developed out um, uh, from there. Um, but I think the second thing that actually only dawned on me, believe <laughs> it not much later, after I'd written several books, was, was this question. Um, most of my intellectual endeavor was trying to bring, shall I say, the standards of the history of science into thinking about the history of geographical uh, knowledge, uh, geographical practice and the like. Um, but, uh, but later on, it struck me that there might be traffic that could run the other way. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, were there any things about the methodology of um, uh, the social or geographical sciences that might illumine um, the history of science itself, and, and I began, therefore, to think about um, history of science questions from a geographical or from a spatial or locational um, perspective. So, Carla, for me, the traffic has been both ways. In other words, being in um, a geography and archaeology department might seem an unusual location for someone doing the history of science, and I was doing the sort of history of my own sciences, if you like. But it also was fertile, I think, um, encouraging me to think through the lens of those disciplines about science questions more generally. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. So the book that we are gathered here on Skype to talk about today looks specifically at the ways that Darwin's work was understood in a range of settings around 1900. And it does this, um, taking a cue from what you've just described, by looking very carefully at the ways that different communities that shared the same confessional heritage, as you put it in the book, dealt with Darwin in different places and in their own local situations. And we'll go into lots more detail about at least some of those local situations um, in a moment. Now, in the preface to the book, you talk about the emergence of the idea for the book in a conversation one afternoon in 1999 with Ron Numbers. Yeah, right. And the further development of the book um, in the context of the 2014 Gifford Lectures. So could you talk a little bit for us about the genesis of the book? Yeah, well... um uh, I, I met up with Ron uh, at a conference uh, that he'd organized. I think it was in Berkeley. Now, by that stage, um, I was um, I was beginning to be reasonably well advanced on um, a, a project to think geographically about the sciences more generally. And I, I was writing a, a book for Steve Shapin's um, Chicago series, um, a, a little book. It was about 70,000 words, which I called was, was then going to call Putting Science in Its Place. Now, that afternoon with, with Ron, two ideas got born. I'm not worried about the other one. That, that book came out in 2008. But um, the idea really really was born. I, I was beginning already to think the enterprise of thinking about science and religion, which, of course, is, is very much Ron's line of, line of country. It was striking me as being much too, shall I say, abstracted, much too um, conducted on the, the pure purest level of ideas 
in intellectual history, theology, um, scientific theory, um, and the like. And um, I'd begun thinking um, already by then that um, surely it matters where conversations about science, and in this particular case, where conversations about Darwin uh, took place. And, And the kind of intuitive question I was posing was, well, did those places make any difference? Um, Would the conversations about Darwin, leaving aside religion, would the conversations about Darwin, say, in South Africa, look anything like conversations about Darwin in Russia? Um, Would a conversation over Darwin in 19th century Russia look anything like what might be happening in New Zealand? And uh, my, my gut feeling was that I bet there are differences here, And if there are differences, the intriguing question is, why are they different? Now, this could, on the surface, sound very much like the kind of old, um, uh, you know, um, uh, reception studies of of Darwin or any other theory um, around the world. But I I didn't want to do this at a, a sort of very... Um, general regional level, I became much more interested in particular institutions and the way in which they literally shaped debates over certain topics. Well, then, of course, it was an easy thing to think. I wonder is the same thing true when you bring religion into the question. So, so rather than thinking about, um, you know, um, uh, not only the sort of general question, what's the relationship between science and religion? Obviously, silly. Um, and, and even more specific, what's the relationship between Buddhism and, religion and, and, and science or Christianity and science, or Islam and science? I began to think, what about locating these in very particular environments? So I started off on that project after finishing many others. I mean, this is, I don't know, 14 years or something after I initially talked with Ron um, about that. But then when I got the invitation to... Um, do the Gifford Lectures, I was pretty well advanced on the project and I thought that would give me an opportunity to try the ideas out in a sort of wider forum and so uh, that's what I did. Now, now I think, Carla, you you did um, mention that I followed one confessional uh, tradition. Now, now as, um, as humanities scholars, I think we tend to get nervous about the use of social science methodologies. So I apologize for putting it this way. But but um, one reason why I followed one tradition was to try to control at least some of the variables. Now, now when I say that, <laughs> humanities friends get very, very nervous, you know, um, you know, if I'd gone over to the dark side or something. <laughs> but but this was one way to at least at least I could do this. Um, if it should turn out that following one confessional tradition and following their debates with Darwin, if the debates turned out to be different, that was a clue to thinking there's something else going on other than just the confessional commitments of these uh, particular communities and the place to start looking is local culture. Now, the specific confessional um, heritage or confessional family that you looked at um, in these very different localities was Scottish Calvinists. So can you talk a little bit about that choice? What motivated that particular choice of professional heritage for you? Well, I'd I'd worked earlier on... an earlier book where I looked at um, it more generally um, conservative Christians uh, in their response to Darwin, um, evangelical uh, uh, responses to Darwin and and I found perhaps 
um, a disproportionately large amount of material amongst those of a Scottish Calvinist culture writing about this. So I just knew that there was lots of material uh, that would be available. Um, I also knew that um, uh, Scots Calvinists have traditionally had or had traditionally had, at least since the Scottish Enlightenment, Enlightenment and, and no doubt well before that, um, generally speaking, a very open and positive attitude to engaging with, with uh, scientific culture and culture more generally. In other words, these were not, um, as it were, sort of pietist traditions in the traditional sense. They were m- uh, much more kind of uh, wanting to transform cultures, st- uh, you know, make their stamp upon a culture and so on. And it struck me that uh, there would be material here. Uh, secondly, of course, they have particularly for the United States, they have a fairly distinctive pattern of um, settlement and uh, diffusion and and, um, uh, and and the like. So it was relatively easy to find, you know, coherent groups in the American South, for example, or um, north of the uh, north of the Mason-Dixon line in Canada, um, and also um, in in um, Ireland, uh, which is another one of my examples. And and of course, it, this turned out to be a great choice for. Giving the Gifford lectures in Scotland. I mean, I mean, this was sort of advertising how your culture has dealt with this in many different places. So I think those were some of the reasons. Uh, some of them just pragmatic, and because coming from Ireland, I knew a good deal about having had myself a, a Presbyterian heritage. I knew a good deal about that, and um, uh, I suppose I, those were just some of the reasons that I, I turned towards that community. Great, fantastic. So as you remind us very early in the book, um, and I'll just uh, use a quote because I think you, uh, like many, many other places in the book, the language is very vibrant, it's very sparkling, and you put it very eloquently. So I'm just going to read this out very uh, briefly. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. No, no, this is, it's, this is good. This is a compliment. So the circulation of ideas is not simply about transference. It's about transformation. It's not just about dissemination. It's about appropriation. So you bring us, I think, a very, very useful intervention into what's become a very vibrant field of the history of science, technology, and medicine, and that is the study of circulation. And so one of the things that one of the many things the book is doing is informing the way we understand, I think, more broadly, histories of circulation and with circulation and transmission by turning our attention to the local specificities of two kinds of ways you identify early in the book where the spoken and the written word are shaped very locally. And you call these geographies of reading and speech spaces. So can you start us off in our exploration of the book by saying a little bit about these two concepts as they've shaped what you're arguing here, the importance of ideas that is of geographies of reading and of speech spaces? Yeah, right. Well, um, let's take the geographies of reading, uh, first of all. Um, one influence uh, on, on, on my thinking about this um, uh, was when I read the, um, the writings um, of Edward Said. Um, Said has a very interesting um, article published many years ago called Traveling Theory. I think I mentioned this in the preface, Carla. And um, what Said is, is interestingly after here is to query the um, the apparently simple way in which ideas might move around the world. He's interested, therefore, in the way in which they are encountered and read and put to work in very particular contexts. 
And this is what I call the geography of reading, where people read the suspicion is may have a, a direct impact upon how they read. And one of the reasons for this is, of course, every time you read a text, any text at all, you bring your own reading history to it. You read in the light of what you've read before. Um, Gillian Beer, um, uh, who um, is an English English literature um, specialist, but has written quite a lot, as I'm sure you're aware about about Darwin and Darwin's reading habits. She's got a wonderful phrase about about this that we read in the light of our, I would call this our kind of reading genealogies. And then she says, once texts are in the mind, they intermingle in promiscuous ways. <laughs> And I think what she's really saying here is that not, we bring our own particular uh, reading background to uh, a- any text. But I think we can add to that that we bring our cultural background, we bring our cultural circumstances um, to read um, any particular text. Now, now this has, of course, um, a kind of uh, a subversive um, element to it um, because it means that labels that might be used the same labels that might be used in all sorts of different places may well connote different things in those environments. I mean, um, uh, if my suspicions are are true, um, what Darwin and Darwin's theories were taken to mean in different places might be very different. And that means that there's a kind of a certain sort of instability as to what even a phrase like Darwinism might mean um, if it's being appropriated or um, made to mean different things um, in different settings. So um, I therefore uh, use this to signal um, that I'm not just so interested in what used to be called the dissemination of ideas, but I'm interested in how they are mobilized how they are put to use, how they're encountered, what they are made to mean. So for me, um, it's a less interesting question to say, what did Darwin mean when he wrote this? Uh, To me, a more interesting question is, what did people take Darwin to mean when he said uh, some of these things? So um, that's to try to get location, locality, um, particular circumstance onto the stage of encountering, encountering texts. Now, um, you want me to say something about then the speech element of, of, of this, Carla? That would be great, because orality and the spoken word play such an important role in the story. Well, uh, what I think I was really um, after here was, uh, to some degree, uh, stimulated by the fact that at least some of my case studies, um, uh, uh, several of them, uh, two or three at least, um, rotate ar- around public controversies. So, um, so these public um, debates um, and uh, participants would, would, would engage in, in the debate and so on, I became quite interested in the rhetoric, the language that these participants were, were using um, and uh, the kinds of images to which they had resort, whether they were um, uh, gentle images or whether they were more aggressive images and, and, and the like. Now, um, what then became sort of clear to me was that the choice of language used by interlocutors in these debates shaped how the debates were perceived. They set the debate up in certain sorts of ways. 
And then, of course, that has a knock-on effect for a period of time uh, afterwards. People find it very hard to think about um, these topics, science topics, say, say Darwin's theory or something, in categories other than the ones in which, the, in, in terms of the way the debate had been set up at that initial sort of public um, encounter. So I began to think, yes, what people can feel happy or free about saying is conditioned to some degree by the speech space, I've called it, that has been set up in those initial uh, debates or, or on encounters. So, th- so this led me more generally to think about the role of orality or talk in intellectual enterprises. Um, are there places where people would feel free to say certain things, but they wouldn't say those with a different audience in a different setting, in a different space? And I therefore thought attending to um, uh, the locatedness of these speech events would be a helpful thing. Now, of course, there's a deep irony um, here, as you as a historian um, of science as well will see this immediately. Um, I'm having to use the written word as a surrogate for what people were saying. And I mean, I always get, get asked this. But this is what led me for at least as much of this as I could to look to things like newspapers, to look to places where speeches that were given where in particular venues were reprinted as close to ad verbatim as I could find so that I can get as close as I can to the to the written uh, to the spoken word so um obviously I didn't have as we have this morning I didn't have a, a tape machine running or or whatever you know to do to do that but it did it did impress upon me that how things are said and the context in which they're said and what people intend their audiences to hear are very important elements in thinking about scientific debates. Right, and this is great. Um, and I think it's it's very striking once we work through, um, or once the reader works through many of the case studies to see how many of the um, case studies feature public lectures and public lecturing. Yes. And it's just, so this is, I think, a really beautiful way of, of bringing us um, into that as, as a, or taking a critical stance toward that fact. And also, um, in addition to just, you know, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, in addition to, I think, bringing us into the importance of both the written and the spoken words and these, uh, with these ideas of geographies of reading and speech spaces, it also really nicely sets up a kind of co-production or attention between both, um, kind of a way to signal and to allow for individuality and freedom in reading text while also talking about the very real constraints that are shaping those readings. And so, so after the first chapter um, where you lay out the conceptual foundations of the work, the remaining ones proceed to introduce episodes that bring us into specific localities of reading and talking about Darwin. And these, as you've mentioned, collectively move us away from understanding Darwin and his histories in terms of isms. So it's, it's really useful in that yeah. way. Now, the chapters do this by looking carefully at the roles of three interrelated factors in shaping public encounters with Darwin's ideas. And these are the factors 
chapters that are invoked um, in the title, Place, Politics, and Rhetoric. And we'll talk about these individually in much more detail um, as we move into some of the individual case studies. So we probably won't be able to talk about all of the case studies, but we'll move into at least a few so that listeners can have a sense of the range here. So the first case study takes us into Edinburgh in the 1870s. Yeah. This is a context in which um, you're kind of taking us into um, uh, the circumstances of engagement with talking about reading about Darwin, but also showing us um, a a dramatic change along the way. So early on, as you show us um, in this chapter, the Scottish Presbyterian intellectual leadership managed to domesticate Darwinian theory to serve their own purposes, and they accommodated Darwinian readings, Darwinian thought, with relative ease. Now, there was midway through the chapter, early on in the chapter, there's a dramatic challenge to this, um, and this is a challenge brought by William Robertson Smith. So to get us started um, in our exploration of this chapter, can you say a little bit about him as a figure? I mean, he's a super fascinating figure. And also, what was his reading of Darwin and and what was the big deal? What was so controversial in his analysis? Yeah, well, William Robertson Smith is indeed um, an an intriguing figure. Maybe I should just say that I thought I should begin with Edinburgh, since this is Scots Presbyterianism. So let's begin with the Ur tradition, if you like. Uh, So at any rate, uh, yeah, so um, the the Edinburgh um, uh, tradition seems to me, uh, for whatever reason, to have accommodated, as you say, uh, uh, Darwinism, or at least evolution, evolutionary theory with comparative ease. There's a little bit of uncertainty at the beginning, but certainly by the 1870s, you get um, key figures in the uh, Free Church of Scotland um, happily saying that, uh, you know, they don't have any major theological stake really at all in um, in, in Darwin's uh, um, thinking. I mean, I mean, they're not they're not ultra Darwinians, but um, long earth history, transformism, even the operation of natural selection, adaptation, perhaps even aspects of human evolution might well be explained um, this way. Now, uh, uh, that, that that I should just have to say stands in marked contrast to exactly the same tradition, uh, not but several hundred miles away across the Irish Sea in Ireland, not to anticipate our um, a later chapter, but um, that that very same winter, a very, very different atmosphere is prevailing in Belfast. And the question is, uh, why? Now, um, one of these, um, uh, one of the reasons is, of course, that... Um, uh, the Scots had other, much more serious worries um, on their minds, I think, than Darwin's challenge. Um, Dan Dennett uh, talks about Darwin's ideas being very dangerous. You know, he's, he's got that book, Darwin's Dangerous um, Idea. But in 19th century Scotland, Darwin's idea wasn't at all dangerous compared with the dangers of a much more local figure, William Robertson Smith, whom you've mentioned. William Robertson Smith was a brilliant um, student of um, uh, the Old Testament, um, a brilliant Hebrew scholar, uh, multilingual, and went on to become one of Britain's most celebrated Orientalists. Now, what Robertson Smith, I think, um, was doing here was um, he was uh, introducing, very largely introducing into the English-speaking world, and into Britain in particular, um, a variety of 
uh, critical views about ancient texts that were emanating from uh, continental and in particular continental German um, sources. So these were uh, critics who were um, arguing that one ought to read sacred texts um, like the Hebrew Bible, just the way scholars were reading other ancient texts, looking for diverse sources, um, not presuming um, that that this text was um, without um, error, inerrant, um, infallible, or anything of that sort, simply bring the methods of historical criticism to bear upon um, the reading of um, ancient texts. So Robertson Smith um, whilst he himself remained um, a very uh, staunch Calvinist um, believer, um, mobilized these um, critical methods in order to challenge um, most of the traditional interpretations of of the Old Testament. Now, um, one of the reasons, uh, one of the underlying, uh, um, I suppose, conceptual foundations of this whole move was a form of pre-Darwinian evolutionism, pre-Darwinian social evolutionism, because what animated much of that project was the degree to which um, Old Testament texts, particular books, reflected the the um, stage of were believed to reflect the stage of social evolution to which that particular society um, had attained, which that particular society had attained at particular points in time. So, by using social evolutionary um, conceptions of cultural and social change, this became a tool for um, reordering the dates of Old Testament works, um, uh, reconceptualizing what could have been said and could not have been said at particular points in time, and therefore producing an entirely novel um, set of uh, understandings about the nature of Old Testament chronology, um, Old Testament ritual, Old Testament um, uh, religious forms, um, and the like. Now, this was infinitely more threatening, I think, to the traditional Scottish Calvinist mindset than the notion that a species might actually happen to be able to transform into another species over a period of time. So the second thing about Robertson Smith was that he became very interested in ancient Hebrew ritual, Mm -hmm. particularly ritual sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And as he pondered um, uh, Arabian and early Semitic ritual sacrifice, he believed that he had grounds for ascertaining um, the notion that these were grounded in an early form of ritual cannibalism. So the whole issue about totem, taboo, and so on, find their animus largely in Robertson Smith's writings. And in fact, this is where they were encountered by both um, Emil Durkheim and uh, Sigmund Freud, who thought very highly of uh, Robertson Smith's um, uh, uh, developments and, and, and contributions and the like. Now, of course, in a Scottish Calvinist culture, the suspicion that Eucharist might have its foundations in some form of ritual cannibalism was, um, shall I say, somewhat more threatening than Darwin's dangerous idea about one species transforming into another. So um, I think that um, where there were intellectual challenges for the Scots Calvinists, they were not over Darwin at all. Robertson Smith's paleoanthropology, his imaginative reworking of um, the intellectual history of Semitic ritual um, and his very challenging understanding of the nature of 
taboo and totem in early tribal peoples. I think these were things that were much more disturbing to them. Ironically, he was, he was um, Robertson Smith, not particularly persuaded about Charles Darwin's version of um, evolution, but was massively persuaded by pre-Darwinian versions of evolution. Uh, versions of evolution. So, so I think we can't understand the conversation about Darwin in 1870s, 1880s Edinburgh without understanding the enormous threat that's coming from this man you mentioned, William Robertson Smith. That's fabulous. Thank you so much. And, and that's just, it's a fascinating chapter and it leads us into another fascinating chapter. And this is one that you've already um, invoked in discussing what's happening with William Robertson Smith. So as yeah. I mentioned, um, the same winter, um, this is also a winter that you call the winter of discontent. Indeed, yes. Over in Belfast. And chapter three moves us to Belfast and really emphasizes the importance of rhetorical nuance and understanding how Darwin was dealt with in Belfast. And so here we begin to see um, in, in great detail the importance of rhetorical style and rhetorical nuance in shaping these debates. So this chapter looks very closely at the influence of the Belfast Address of John Tyndall on the way that Darwin was read and spoken about among Presbyterian intellectuals in the city. So to understand, again, what, what was, um, to understand how we come to the winter of discontent, can you say a little bit about how Darwin was read in Belfast before um, Tyndall's address of 1874? Yes, well, um, having looked through as many sources I could conceivably um, find, uh, before 1874, there's really relatively little concern about about Darwin's uh, Darwin's theory. In fact, I can find um, some examples of um, clergymen who were already in the 1860s. Um, using natural selection to explain a range of, of, when they were doing amateur natural history, to explain a range of natural history um, phenomena. Um, but mostly, I think, Carla, would be fair to say that what is conspicuous about the engagement between uh, these theologians and Darwinism up to 1874, what's conspicuous is that there's almost nothing of it at all. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're not really concerned about Darwin. There are some soporific comments that are um, uh, mentioned, some like aspects of Darwin are a little bit doubtful about, about others, but there is no massive kind of uh, response. There is no um, uh, controversy really worth talking about that I can see. In fact, mostly I would characterize the period up to the 1870s as um, tolerance, um, uh, maybe even embracing um, uh, to some degree, but certainly nothing of a, of a mega scale. So to set this up, re- re- return to the Edinburgh context, 1874, the principal of the of the um, new college, uh, Free Church of Scotland College is saying, um, we've no theological interest in Charles Darwin's theories. Exactly the same winter in Belfast, People are saying, um, you know, this is um, uh, Darwin and um, Tyndall and so on are um, uh, going to destroy the entire foundations of our society. And um, this, you know, is just absolutely important. The question is, what makes the difference? Right. My answer, I think, is the British Association for the Advancement of Science meets that summer in Belfast in 1874. And uh, the, uh, the president is the Irishman John Tyndall. 
In fact, the newspapers welcomed him as um, uh, um, an Irishman in his, uh, you know, sort of um, emotions and, and Celtic vehemence and things of this sort. Well, of course, Tyndall, as scholars have pointed out for a long time, was a member of this um, X-Club group, a group of professionalizing scientists in the latter part of the 19th century who really were on a, on a quest to wrest authority away from the old-fashioned clerical um, parson and naturalists and move authority into the hands of the new professionally professionalizing sciences and scientists. And Tyndall, of course, coming to Belfast, um, determined indeed that he would be on this particular campaign to more or less say to um, uh, theologians and parson naturalists and, and things of that sort, look, leave science to the professionalizing and professional scientists. Theology has no place to play in empirical endeavors of um, a scientific uh, kind. Um, And I guess if you wanted to uh, inaugurate a campaign, a public campaign, I mean, there could scarcely be a better place to do it than Belfast, you know, I mean, a sort of religious city, a city, of course, that had its own uh, religious strifes and um, and so on. And he determined, therefore, I think I use his words, to be less tender here than he, he might otherwise have been elsewhere. So, so he comes and then there's this bombshell, you know, that um, as, as someone described, it was a gunshot that echoes around the world. Um, I think Oscar Wilde or something, you know, or maybe it's George Bernard Shaw, but puts into the mouth of one of his, his characters the phrase, nothing has ever been the same since Tyndall gave that speech at Belfast. Um, so uh, so uh, there's, there's a, a winter of discontent. He alienates enormously this Calvinist hierarchy and they feel they have to do something to stem the tide towards what they believed him to be saying, namely materialism. Now, of course, the scholars have been on the case for a long time, saying you know maybe Tyndall wasn't as materialist as people thought he was, and in fact he wasn't really a materialist, and he was this, that, and the other. But they heard him in a certain way. The speech space to them was he was preaching a gospel of materialism. So they organize a whole series of winter lectures in order, I think, to sort of um, recoup um, a a piece of cultural authority, to to resurvey the bounds of their own uh, tradition. And, um, of course, the lectures are attacking Tyndall, Spencer, and all that kind of Epicurean brood who are going to destroy our world, or are going to introduce eugenics, or are going to do this, that, and the other. So, so, Carlin, the argument here is, once Tyndall does this, and once this winter happens, it's very hard to think of Darwin and evolution outside the context of the speech space that Tyndall has helped to set up. And this is just very different from what's happening across the Irish Sea in Edinburgh, where, of course, they hear about the Tyndall event sort of secondhand, but it doesn't have that immediacy that it does for the local community who are writing into the newspapers, who are producing pamphlets that are selling by 10, 15,000 reprints being called for. And it sets the tone for the conversation about Darwin, I would say, for at least a generation. And that um, the notion of a speech space is really important to mark here because the argument yes. um, that listeners are um, are really um, 
marking this as well. The argument here is not simply, you know, Tyndall said this thing and it made a difference and it changed uh, people's minds. The argument is very specifically that he created or he opened up a rhetorical space that shaped um, debate for later generations. So it's specifically, again, invoking this notion of a rhetorical space or speech space, which potentially has much um, more sort of wide-ranging ramifications for other contexts as well. And and I hope we have a chance to talk about that um, by the end of our conversation. Well, let me just add one little thing uh, about that. At the time, um, and and this this opens up the whole question about the appropriateness of certain rhetoric. Um, One thing that was quite often said after Tyndall's speech was that he had acted with impropriety, namely that in in some sense he had, some some members of the public felt that he had betrayed um, what would be the decorum that might be expected for a president of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. So um, you could say that um, they felt that in one sense, Tyndall did not observe the unwritten rules of how to behave in this speech space, um, and, and, and therefore they were critical of him. On the other hand, you could say, maybe that's precisely what Tyndall had in mind, so that he knew that by violating these norms of gentility and and so on by acting in a way that that might have sounded uh, aggressive enabled him to get precisely the kind of debate that he wanted to have because um, he, he notes in a letter to someone how delighted he is that uh, I think he says every pulpit in Belfast thundered of me and you can get the sense that he's saying and what a great job that was so so the deliberate violating if indeed that's what it was of a speech space can have consequences that are much more dramatic than simply obeying the rules of what might be expected of what a colleague of mine calls platform culture. Thank you. Now, lest um, the listener or reader think that each one of these cases features some dramatic engagement, (laughs) Um, there is a chapter here that takes us into Toronto. This is chapter Ah. four. Now, there wasn't the same degree of spectacle and a public spectacle um, here that we saw in other contexts. And in fact, the way you put it here, what's most conspicuous about the debate over Darwinism in Canada is its relative absence. Yes. Um, This is a very different context. And um, we want to have time to talk too much about it, but I just want to mention for listeners and perhaps talk a little bit about one of the really, one of many, but one uh, really interesting aspect of what's going on here. So the chapter focuses in on a Calvinist community that congregated around Knox College. Yes. Um, And you talk about that particular context uh, in the way that it shapes engagement with Darwin in this locality. Now, really interestingly, um, dealings with Darwin here as you describe them, are connected deeply with the way that intellectuals in Toronto are understanding and attending to Baconian induction. Yes. So because this is probably of um, particular interest as well to historians of science, could you say a little bit about that and the kind of work that that's doing at this part of the book? Yes. Uh, well, the Toronto story is is actually, for the very reasons you mentioned, an, an intriguingly interesting one. Um, and um, uh, so let me just say two things um, about this. Um, first of all, um, uh, 
this this community uh, in Toronto is a very Scottish community. Um, they are um, very much committed to this to, to Scottish ideals of, of of learning, as indeed um, many natural scientists were in the Victorian period or nineteenth century period in in Canada, and they have um, absorbed um, a traditional emphasis on Baconian induction. Um, so uh, natural natural historians are in Canada um, very enthusiastic for the slow accumulation of facts um, the inductive gathering of particulars um, and they are relatively allergic to what you might call speculation of one sort um, and another. Now, uh, this uh, is born, I think, at least in part of this um, heritage of of, um, Scottish thinking about um, uh, a common sense tradition, as it was called, of Scottish learning and so on. But I think also it came out of um, something something else, um, the practicalities of doing science in the environment within which um, they are operating. You know, they want to find out about a vast country, its its natural resources. They practice what I think one historian, Suzanne Zeller, calls inventory science, just accumulating information about the um, uh, the continental sort of width of this vast, uh, vast country. So... Um, among the natural historians and geologists and so on, um, there's much less interest in Canada, I think, uh, uh, much less interest in, in, in theoretical questions and certainly much less interest in speculative questions. Now, this um, Knox uh, College um, uh, community, of course, had grown up in that, in that Scottish heritage as well, but they seem to me to be rather more interested in questioning the Baconian method as the only true method for um, acquiring um, genuine scientific knowledge. So they, uh, to some degree, uh, are interested in looking at the the positive value of speculation. What I suppose now we, um, in the philosophy of science, might call something like they're more interested in seeing the potentiality of deductive reasoning rather than just the inductive gathering of particulars. Now, um, a second feature that I think influences them is they, as with uh, um, some of their Scottish uh, counterparts, have become very interested in what you might call the evolution of biblical documents, Mm -hmm. the way in which, as they understood it, divine revelation was a progressive thing, such that you get um, um, uh, a story of a progressive divine revelation revealed in the different stages of um, the, the Old Testament narrative. Now, this sense of dynamic progressivism, this querying of the absolute value of Baconian induction, I think, led them to be much more interested in evolutionary thinking than the natural historians were. So the irony is that, as I read it, at least as far as this community is concerned, they are more open to Darwinian evolution than the scientists are. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because of their willingness to think we've got to go beyond mere Baconian induction, and they're already thinking in a processual way about the notion of uh, um, textual documents undergoing, uh, you know, that there's a sort of historical sequencing, um, a, a sense of evolutionary development of intellectual and spiritual and revelatory ideas. I think this 
pushes them more towards an evolutionary outlook. Thank you so much. Now, as we move to chapter five, we cross the border from Canada into the U.S., and this chapter moves us into Columbia, South Carolina. This is a, an incredibly fascinating um, part of the story. So I want to make sure we have a little bit of time to okay. attend to this. So in this context, Southern Presbyterians are engaged in a protracted debate over the future of Woodrow Wilson's uncle, James Woodrow, as an advocate of evolution and a teacher in the Presbyterian Semin- uh, Seminary. So you introduce Woodrow for us, and you take us into a context in 1884 where he gives a lecture to the Alumni Association of the Columbia Seminary. Now, in 1886, two years later, he is dismissed from this professorship um, in the Southern Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Columbia, South Carolina, because his views on Darwin's theory of evolution um, are described as, in the words of one commentator, the greatest controversy the Presbyterian Church U.S. has ever known. Okay, so in order to understand what's going on here, um, what is Woodrow saying in this lecture, um, and what's the big deal of why, how, what's going on in, in that context and um, that lets it have the kinds of reverberations that we'll um, talk about in a bit? Well, this, this Carla, really is a, a long, deep and dark story, I, I have yeah. to say. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I'll be brief here. But I mean, let me just say by way of preface, um, you, you, you would, whether you like this book or not, have to at least agree with me that it, it feels pretty different, this from Toronto, doesn't it? I mean, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, there's, something, there's something different here, right? So, so um, uh, James Woodrow holds um, a, a chair that had been established quite some years before um, uh, to do with the um, uh, reconciliation or it's a chair, something something to do with um, the study of science and in connection with religion or something of that sort. So it's a chair actually for harmonizing uh, religion with science, which of course indicates that the Southern Presbyterians had felt the need to deal with the question of for the the seminarians challenges that science was bringing to um, theological um, conviction. Now, uh, James Woodrow had had a certain amount of of scientific um, training and so on, was appointed to this post, and as he read um, uh, Charles Darwin, Evolution, and so on, and kept up to date with um, geology, kept up to date with natural history, um, he felt that, in fact, um, Darwin's theory in the main was, was true, and he began to lay this out to his students. Now, this was deeply, deeply troublesome to uh, uh, the hierarchy of the um, Southern Presbyterian uh, Church, and it it resulted in his dismissal from his chair after yet another lengthy, lengthy serpentine, um, Byzantine, if you like, um, set of um, ecclesiastical uh, proceedings. Now, um, as with many of these uh, debates that are happening in other places, um, on the surface, this looks like a debate over science and religion, and and um, I was uh, just a little unhappy about leaving it at that um, sort of explanatory level. So the question that I ask really is: Is there anything else that's going on here? Is there anything else that's going on behind behind the scenes? Now there are many factors. Now I'll just mention you know one or two of them, Carla, very very quickly. Um, one is that we've got to not see this as the first. 
real concern at all that um, Southern Presbyterians have over science. They'd already been concerned about a number of other things. Um, What they'd been concerned about included things like earlier on what uh, they thought were the infidel um, uh, attacks upon the Bible by the geologists um, who were uh, elaborating a lengthy um, earth history. Um, so they resisted They resisted um, that. They were also deeply concerned about what had been going on in the realm of physiological psychology um, to do with um, uh, the understanding of the human person and the inclination in some circles to treat the human in a sort of reductionist fashion. But more particularly, they had been fighting a long action against anthropology since the 1830s. And in particular, what they had been fighting against was the notion that had been put forward by figures like um, uh, George, uh, George Morton, um, uh, Knott, um, Glidden, and so on, uh, that, and indeed Louis Agassiz, that the human race was actually composed of different species different species that had been created or had come into being in different places and therefore that the human race was of multiple origins. Now you can see how this could indeed um, have supported uh, um, as a sort of um, racialized notion of uh, human hierarchy and could be used to justify the practices of slavery. But these are these are Presbyterians and they don't like uh, the notion that the human race might be of multiple origins. They want to retain what was called a monogenetic version of human origins that all human beings were descended from the biblical Adam. Now you might say, what has all this got to do with, with Darwin? Well, two things. The first thing is that they throw Darwin quickly into the context of the implications of his theory for human origins. They've been so used to thinking about anthropology, polygenism, the nature of species, and so on, that when, that when Darwin comes on the scene, it seems to be a continuation of this long debate about human origins and seem to them to just be the latest form of um, skepticism and infidelity that they are doing their best to resist um, in, 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 in their southern culture. But I think the second thing that's important um, about, about that um, is this. Um, they had already been attentive to the Bible to find in it what it really said about slavery. They didn't want to justify slavery in the language of polygenesis. So they went through the Old and New Testament and identified every single mention of servant, slave, bond servant, bond maid, and so on, and could not find a single attack on those practices in the pages of the Old and New Testaments. They were very, very literalistic about understanding that the Bible nowhere condemned slavery. Now, here's the thing. If you wanted to be literalist about every verse attending to slavery, you were going to become very nervous about any scientific theory that wanted to treat the early chapters of Genesis in a non-literal, metaphorical, general um, sort of way. And so, in order to defend the slave culture and then 
after um, the Civil War to retain their notions of segregation and racial hierarchy. They were so committed to a literal Bible that they had no interest whatsoever in caving in to the metaphorical reconstructions that would be necessary if a person was going to adopt Darwinism. And that's exactly what James Woodrow fell, fell fall of. Darwin was interpreted as just simply the latest form of infidelity emanating from the Yankee North. Mm-hmm. And this is actually really um, also uh, a particularly fascinating instance of this larger phenomenon. Um, just to, to put a finer point on it that you mentioned at the very beginning of the book and that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, and that is the importance of an attentiveness to geographies of reading. Because here we see geographies of reading playing out not only in terms of how this community is engaging with um, texts of Darwin, but also how they're engaging with scripture. And you can see how this geography of reading is really influencing both of these different um, uh, texts and or textual reading practices. So it's really, really fascinating. Well, I think this is this is a moment, a critical moment in hermeneutics, if you like, because um, I think that the whole abolitionist movement, for example, uh, did force upon, I mean, both both theologians in, in the northern states and also in the south, this question, how should one read these texts? I mean, um, uh, the one thing that you could never say about the southern Presbyterians is that they didn't know their Bibles. I mean, that's the one thing they certainly did know. The question then was, um, where, you know... Uh, what is the right way to read these texts? And this looks awfully like a very distinctive Southern reading, uh, reading, as someone has said, from a particular uh, particular place. And I think that, therefore, this has a spillover effect on how they're going to read Darwin. Thank you. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time to talk about the Princeton case, but I just kind of yeah. want to mention it um, briefly sure. because it's another really um, interesting and important part of this discussion. So just as uh, we just talked about the particular um, local reading space and speech space of Columbia, um, you take us into the very distinctive discursive space for engaging evolution that grows up in Princeton. And the, what pr- helps produce this is a really interesting engagement um, with the work of of two figures, James McCosh, who's university, uh, who's president of the College of New Jersey, and Charles Hodge, who's chair at a seminary and who's interested in Darwinism as atheism and in relation to atheism. Now, these men are, wind up prompting a dialogue over Darwin that's shaped by very, very different rhetorical spaces that they occupy. So even though we're talking about Princeton, we're talking about very, very different rhetorical spaces in Princeton. And so the you show here their respective styles of communication, their styles of communication, not the substance of their evaluation of Darwinism. So that's a really important distinction. Styles of communication, not substance of their evaluation, help explain how one comes to be known as, quote, the era's foremost reconciler of Christianity and Darwin. This is Makash. And the other becomes known as a staunch anti-Darwinian, and that's Hodge. Now, Rhetorical nuance here in this part of the argument counts more than cognitive content. And these men are occupying, again, different speech spaces. So can you perhaps say um, just a little bit about 
the importance of understanding this in terms of speech spaces and maybe how this shapes uh, the ensuing engagement with evolution in Princeton. Yeah, you've, you've summarized that extremely well, uh, better than I could have done myself, Carl, I think. So, um, so uh, we, start with, um, we start with two statements, you know, so 1874, actually that turns out to be a crucial year uh, all over the world here as far as these debates are concerned. So 1874, um, Charles Hodge, who is um, a, a very uh, venerable um, theologian, produces his last work and it's called What is Darwinism? Now, um, uh, he, he concludes uh, with what's very well known in um, science religion circles with, with, with this observation, Darwinism is atheism. I mean, that looks pretty crystal clear, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, so, uh, uh, so, so that's, that's um, uh, him writing from uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. So just across the road then, the College of New Jersey, um, another Presbyterian uh, clergyman who's the president of the college, James McCosh, um, uh, he, he, um, he, he says something like, evolution is going on everywhere before our eyes. Um, and um, um, uh, students of, uh, of the Bible and so on will be much better advised showing their students how they can accept the doctrine of, of development without losing their faith and railing against it. So something of that sort. Now, these look pretty much like different evaluations, do they not, um, uh, at least on the surface? Now, I think if we could now interview, or if you could get on this line, Charles Hodge and, and James McCosh, call him up, you would actually find that they disagreed very, very little on their understanding of what the right attitude to Darwinism is for this reason, what they both felt was the critical element in thinking about evolution and Darwinism was this: is there a role for purpose or and design and for teleology in natural processes? Hodge thinks that Darwinism is specifically anti teleological. Therefore, if you remove purpose, it's tantamount to atheism. I think Makosh might well have agreed with that, but what he preferred to say was this evolution is a goal-directed process. Evolution is orthogenetic. Evolution is a teleological sort of process. So they're taking, their diagnosis might be the same, but one is choosing to use the language of criticism, whereas the other one is using the language of affirmation. Once one looks for purposeful evolution, the other says, if you don't have purpose in it, it must be atheistic. And my question is, why would these two different stances have developed? And my answer is, McCosh is heading up the College of New Jersey. Um, he has uh, come there uh, from, actually, my own university here in Belfast, um, and is is the person who transforms the College of New Jersey into the Princeton University that will become a major research institution in the 20th century. Um, he uh, cultivates on the campus some outstanding scientists who go on to achieve um, uh, international uh, world renown um, as evolutionists. Uh, one, for example, was um, William Berryman Scott. S- Scott was deeply influenced by McCosh, uh, went on to become the president of the American Philosophical Society and, and perhaps at the time America's leading paleontologist. He, 
Merriman Scott was a leading evolutionist, but always felt that Darwin's mechanism of natural selection was not the only mechanism or even the main mechanism that was involved in evolutionary change. Remember, this is a period around 1900 when Darwinism is somewhat in eclipse with a variety of alternative evolutionary theories, neo-Lamarckism, the orthogenetic theory and the like, being put forward. So Macaulay is in a context where he wants to build a major institution and doesn't want to do anything that's going to alienate scientists and scholars from pursuing research. Macaulay is in a seminary. That seminary wants to maintain the old school values of conservatism that are under challenge from a variety of liberal and modernizing forces in theology. So if you like, Makosha's project is a conservative one, a conservation one, whereas uh, that's Hodge's project. Makosha's project is much more orientated towards the future, towards innovation and towards uh, the building up of a major research institution at, at Princeton. But when you listen to just their individual statements, it's easy to see how one gets typecast as the, the critical anti-Darwinian spokesman of the era, Hodge, and the other as the leading reconciler of Christianity and evolution, James McCosh. So thank you so much um, for taking the time that you have. To talk. Well, thank you. There's, um, so there's just a couple more things to talk about. There's, uh, we won't um, have time to talk about this in any detail, but I'll just sure. mark for listeners who might be interested. There's also a final chapter, Chapter 7, which offers a sustained and also very synthetic look back at the importance of place, politics, and rhetoric and looks at this um, set of issues both then, so taking um, the case studies as a whole that we've looked at over the course of the book and understanding them in terms of flashpoints and trading zones, and also pushes forward and considers these issues as they shape um, dealings with Darwin now. And it takes us into two contemporary cases. One, um, the and, and these are both very well-known cases for people who follow um, yeah. this kind of thing. So one is the reaction of Jerry Coyne to a um, the text of a speech by a paleoecologist, Keith Bennett. Yeah. There is the critical response to a book, What Darwin Got Wrong. And the, this chapter actually offers a really wonderfully balanced view of these debates that doesn't pass judgment, but rather integrates the, the kind of conceptual apparatus that you've given us and that you've developed in light of these case studies into how we might revision or re, um, un, reapproach um, these two cases and others like them. Now, I know um, something that we talked a little bit about um, before we got started in the recording was the possibility of thinking um, more broadly about the applications of the kind of conceptual frame that you're developing here beyond the particular case study of um, Darwin and in this particular um, confessional heritage. Do you want to talk a little bit about that maybe as a way of moving us into the future? What are some of the broader applications that you see for this way of thinking about um, geographies of of text and reading and speech. Yes. Can I say two things, Carla, very of quickly? Course, yeah. um, one, let me just uh, revisit your very nice um, summary of what I was about in that last chapter. I mean, I hesitated to write that last chapter, I have to tell you. Um, and uh, but, but interestingly, when I d- delivered it as, um, as, one, as my final um, Gifford lecture, um, it was actually 
more discussion about that chapter than than, than some of the others. Um, so, um, just to, to reaffirm, one of the reasons is a question I'm all, all often asked is, okay, sure, um, in an era when um, books move around the world very slowly, when we don't have the internet, when we don't have telephone, I mean, I can see place and so on might matter, but surely now that we live in the age of um, the internet, you're speaking to me immediately from Germany this morning and you could have been doing it as easily from that. Surely all this evaporates. And I I think the answer to that is, well, actually, I don't think so. And I I decided I would try this chapter um, to to think about about place um, uh, insofar as it, I believe, is still relevant to thinking about these topics. And the uh, Coyne-Bennett example um, just simply is intended to show that what a person can say when he's speaking to a paleontology international congress and also at the Royal Society of London, querying pan-adaptationism as the only game in town for evolutionary change. He could not get away with saying this in another space, a textual space of the new scientist, because the ultra-Darwinians, like Jerry Coyne and so on, um, quickly got on his case and described him as foolish and idiotic and all that rhetoric um, is there. Now, I'm not adjudicating on this case uh, at all. All I'm saying is that what you could say in one space, you cannot say in another without um, receiving sort of vilification or, or whatever. So it was just a way to think, that, to think that these matters might still be important, even in scientific debates. Now, yeah, your, your final question um, uh, at that point about wider um, application um, well, I do think this has uh, wider application in debates of of all sorts. Um, I think that um, uh, it, it 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 forces upon us. Um, just let's just take the speech uh, business. It forces upon us the way in which locations enable certain types of speech and constrain them at the same time. You know, so um, what kind of speech is appropriate? In, say, for example, a court of law about a scientific uh, uh, matter, um, what can be said, what cannot be said, um, is that just exactly the same as the way a person might speak in a laboratory? Is that exactly the same that they might, way that they might speak if they were talking about science in a synagogue, in a temple, um, in a church? Um, what kinds of things um, will be in the space of public textuality? Um, compared with the rough notes that a person is keeping um, as far as uh, writing academic papers are concerned. And I suppose I, I'm just, I'm just um, thinking that the spaces um, set constraints on what can be said still, and they therefore set constraints upon what can be heard. And I suppose I'm just thinking we ought to attend much more to these elements of rhetoric especially in an era when scientific matters, whether it's about GM crops, whether it's about the human genome, whether it's about um, uh, neurobiology and so on, when these are matters of enormous public um, concern, um, I think being aware of where things are, are being said, how they're being said, and how the, the context might shape what's being said, I think these are still important questions. 
Well, I agree. Um, so David, thank you so much for um, giving us your time and for giving us this really wonderful book. Now, we didn't have a chance to talk about um, a whole bunch of material in the book um, just because of the limited time we had, but is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you'd like to mention for listeners? I think you've covered you've covered the contents of the book really um, really well. I, I suppose I might only have just one little uh, postscript, and um, I suppose this is to um, try to inject um, one of my purposes: inject into readers a sense that um, uh, what looks and I think I've said this already, but, but worth repeating. Repeating when you see a feud or uh, a, a debate over science and religion, particularly. Um, I think it's never wrong to sit back and and say, "Look, is there anything else that's going on here? Are there any interests that are at stake on either side of of, of this conversation and debate?" And I think that often you'll find that after a short period of time. The debate really isn't about science and theology at all, but it's about cultural affairs of one sort and another and the kinds of cultural preferences that one group and or the other group feels are dreadfully under threat if they lose the argument. And therefore, it's moved right outside science and religion into um, um, cultural preferences and cultural argument. So now that the book is done, and congratulations on a fantastic book. Well, thank you. What's next for you? Well, I claim to be writing another book. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm on a three-year um, Leverhulme Major Research uh, Fellowship um, tr- trying to write a, a book um, which I'm entitling, um, after Montesquieu, I think, I'm entitling The Empire of Climate. And what I'm really interested in here is and it won't come out this way, so this isn't the right way to express it, but I'm interested in a history of the idea of climatic determinism, how indeed climate is supposed to have shaped us in every way from the size of our brains to whether we're wealthy, to what our health is like, to what our economy is going to do, and and so on. Now, um, I'm fairly skeptical about determinist sorts of explanations, but my underlying um, sort of feeling is this. One of our great concerns nowadays is rightly about climate change and about anthropogenic climate change, namely the way in which human behavior is bringing about climate transformation. Um, But I feel that what is truly animating this is this thought, what will the climate do to us if we change it in these certain ways? And I see this as a continuation of a very old tradition going back to Hippocrates and back to Herodotus, a fear about the way in which we are shaped inexorably by climate and I think in our modern day shaped by climate change. Well, best of luck. That sounds like another fantastic project. Um, And thank you again. It's really been a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed chatting to you enormously. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.